This is the Right Way Podcast. Right Way Podcast. The 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 Right Way Podcast. Hi, I'm Michelle Prack and I'm on the Right Way Podcast speaking with Sam about my novel, The Rush. Yes, thank you so much for the introduction to tonight's episode there. Michelle Prack as our esteemed guest for tonight's episode of the Right Way Podcast Program. And hello to everyone out there in digital land listening to tonight's episode of the Right Way Podcast Program with me, your host, Samuel James Elliott. person whom you just heard introducing tonight's episode is, of course, as you've come to know with the conventions and the processes of the show, albeit the stages, is tonight's guest introducing the episode and the person whom you heard was Michelle Prack. Michelle Prack and I discussed her debut crime fiction novel, which is out now uh, for you all to get a copy of The Rush. The Rush, uh, before I just, just give a little bit of an overview of what The Rush is about without any spoilies, fret not there, dear listener, I hear you worried about spoilies, don't worry, you're not going to get them from my intro, because I'm going to let Michelle and I uh, discuss that in greater detail, still with no spoilies, but anyway, I digress, so Michelle Prack has made her career out of communications as a sort of uh, expert sought after communicator, predominantly within the written word, but across a broad myriad and of disparate industries as a communicator. And she's also written a slew of well-received short stories and women's fiction. But tonight, we discussed her debut crime fiction novel, as I said, The Rush, which is now out with the good folks at Simon & Schuster. And again, ever conscious of what I just alluded to there previously or assured you of, there's not going to be any spoilies, but basically it centers around uh, at least ostensibly four uh, sort of uh, people thrust together within the confines of a van, traveling or heading towards Darwin, kind of out in this long swathe stretch of nowhere. Uh, one half of those four people is a couple or uh, a couple with a myriad different sort of things going on. And the other two are backpackers, are visitors to our great country as well. So there's kind of a blend of travelers from overseas, abroad, as well as those born within Australia, now to Australia as well. And anyway, things go awry. Uh, and then there's kind of this sort of action going on at the closest kind of pub as well, where worlds sort of collide. I would like to now throw to the actual uh, main event. So everyone, please give a big digital round of applause to Michelle Prack and I discussing her debut crime fiction book now out called The Rush. Michelle Prack, thank you so much for joining me on the Right Way podcast program this evening. How are you doing? I'm really well, thanks, Sam. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. My hat goes off to you, like you you, you revealed to me, you know, in terms of uh, this being a back-to-back meeting and my heart goes off to you because I find it, uh, <laughs> but like you said, you're in the Zoom zone. So that's, you know, that's, that's something to Exactly. Exactly. Now, so good. I always like to start off with this one question, such a good, uh, seemingly simple question. It's actually, you know, a real good way to find out in terms of where did the idea for the rush come from? Was it an image? Was it a character? Was it an experience? Tell us, Michelle, we're, we're dying to know. Uh, it was a lot of experiences on the road. Yep. So a lot of road trips, but my road trips, of course, weren't as thrilling or as violent as the road trip in the yeah, rush. Um, but inspiration was definitely road tripping. I had wanted to write a thriller for quite a long time and was looking for the right scenario or the right setting. And I, because I'd taken so many road trips into isolated South Australia, it often struck me 
how vulnerable you are mm. quite quickly when you leave those city outskirts. I thought it was fascinating how mobile phone reception fell away where, you know, you're um, there's not many people around and being a kind of, you might say, sometimes um, paranoid and imaginative person, mm. <laughs> I thought, uh, yeah, being on the road in a remote location um, would be uh, fantastic for a thriller. So that's where it started to um, bubble away in the in the back of my mind. Yeah, nice. One thing that like I immediately was like a takeaway because I feel that we're we're living in an era where we've never kind of like mistrusted, you know, your fellow stranger more than ever, and yet mm. we're still kind of uh, you know part of it's a budgetary constraint, you know, that's kind of making it more sort of. Uh, people come around to the possibility but what do you think it is that people are willing to kind of uh, subject themselves to kind of not only throwing themselves out into these really remote sort of conditions but also doing so with kind of complete strangers well I'm not sure that people do do it very much they're very cautious and if they do it's because of necessity so Mm. that's another theme I think of uh, the rush is people that do live in isolated regions and that was another of my early fascinations while I was working on the, the very first draft, what it feels like or what it would be like day to day if you're living at this remote outback pub, for example, or living in remote farms. Um, so by necessity, if you live in these far-flung stretches of Australia, uh, you're um, going to find yourself out on the road more often than not Usually, though, you wouldn't be behind the wheel on your own. You'd have some, um, you know, colleagues or family with you. But there's no getting around the fact that you just have to drive for long distances. Um, I guess the rush has a slightly different scenario, though, because it does involve four young people who aren't normally in on the road at all, mm. which um, something I had a lot of fun exploring their naivety and their optimism. <laughs> yeah, speaking about naivety and optimism, um, I think at one point as well, and it's not, ju- it's not just because obviously the, the people within the car is a couple from Australia yeah. and two backpackers. So then you've got this broad sort of spectrum of, you know, people from Australia seemingly they should know know better, you know, air quotes, and then the people yeah. that, that, that don't really know Australia might, you know, might kind of have like a bit of um, naivete about that. But in terms of what can be presented with the misconceptions, I feel that both Australians that are born here as well as those that are travelling from overseas have within mm. Australia as they kind of think that Australia is just this sort of kind of like large barren land that's dry. And then I think that because... Again, this is another thing I like standing out is because the setting itself in terms of the sort of deluge that happens is unique and it's not the go-to that you would think of with Australian sort of um, sort yeah. of weather conditions, extreme weather conditions that you're more attributed to to fires and stuff like that. So, mm. again, tell me a little bit about how that sort of snared your imagination or kind of excited your imagination, Michelle, in terms of the misconceptions that we have, both as potentially locals as well as those from abroad about Australia's sort of extreme weather conditions with flooding and such. Yeah. Uh, I had a lot of fun choosing that different weather setting. I very deliberately didn't want to have another blistering, hot, outback um, crime novel. I, um, I read widely in Australian crime and thrillers, and we know there's um, so many famous and successful uh, novels, and a lot of them were about the heat, and I didn't want to do that. 
I guess it, it was a bit of a commercial decision on my part that I knew that uh, I needed a different angle to get a um, interest. Uh, and at the same time, I was observing, like a lot of us, differences um, with climate change and some unexpected weather events that we can encounter now. So it wasn't ridiculous for me to devise a flood in February. And in mm. fact, I did make sure that there had been flooding in February in some parts of Australia and yeah, it had taken place. So I, I really liked that notion of um, that, that weather providing even more of a risk to these travellers. There's already plenty of risk in being so remote and having no reception with the phones and any emergency assistance, any police being hours away, but throwing in that storm and slippery roads and floodways, um, that raised everything to, you know, raise the stakes. So I, I did enjoy that. And so you mentioned, you know, how people from um, what tourists or visitors might have a different um, perception of Australia and might be even more naive than some of us. And that's of great interest to me as well, because it's almost part of the legend of Australia, isn't it? Mm. That um, it's this sort of frontier that's dangerous. We know we're all the tropes around Australia are about, you know, we've got a heck of a lot of snakes and spiders. Um, and it's not quite a trope, but it is well known that we've got these vast spaces. But I'm not sure a lot of visitors realise the danger of um, trying to do Adelaide to Coobapedia in one day, <laughs> like some of them might want to do. And um, so... That's why the international backpackers were important to the book as well. As you might remember, the four young people get time to discuss these sorts of uh, things in the car, some of the myths about Australia and um, some of the dangers that they don't even realise they are actually driving into. Yeah, definitely. Um, we'll talk a little bit about them kind of discussing the myths in a sec, but in terms of um, oh. just going back to the rain and the flooding, because I think when it comes to a case of a story that has either as the backdrop uh, or critical to the plot uh, of extreme weather events, that it really has to be a character into itself. And the reason I'm bringing this up shamelessly as well, Michelle, is because I'm writing a book completely different, fret not, um, but it's about um, <laughs> sort of unprecedented fire season. And I can awesome. appreciate how important it is to get it right, to get the character right. And you mentioned about doing yeah. research and I'd love to hear in terms of your world building because you obviously had a hell of a time writing it with fun, but how is it that you went about kind of getting that setting sort of just right without beating the reader over the head with it? Yeah. And um, so I grew up in Wyala. That's uh, four hours north of Adelaide. It's not a country town, but it's by no means a, a city. It's about... Um, I don't know, 15,000 people now, and there might be less. Uh, so, and then when I moved to Adelaide to study at uni, there was a heck of a lot of road tripping then. Um, so that got me used to some aspects of the landscape, and that certainly does take in the early part of the, the journey in the rush. So I know that road inside out, and I know the landscape in all sorts of seasons, and um, but also in wider South Australia, I've um, driven um, a, a lot of it in some places where not many people have ventured before. 
Uh, and that's because I used to work for the federal member of parliament oh. whose electorate takes in 92% of South Australia. So his electorate touches the Northern Territory and WA border and so forth. And we used to have to go on road trips now and again, of course, to see constituents and visit remote towns. Uh, I also um, used to work for the South Australian Tourism Commission, who would be loving this book, <laughs> and go to remote regions. And finally, I had the chance to do an epic road trip uh, a few years ago from Adelaide to Cairns via Oodnadatta um, on yeah, the, the roughest roads where yeah, there absolutely was no mobile reception and we all had CB radios. Uh, so that all helped me build the world because I've just driven it so often and I love it. It's It's beautiful. And the other thing about being on a road trip is not just absorbing it, but just giving yourself the quiet and space to think. Mm -hmm. So, you know, stories can um, develop in your mind. It's a nice um, time to daydream mm -hmm. when you're on a road trip. And when it comes to the cover image on the rush of the rush, I'm really delighted with that too because it's just so evocative. That is that orange dirt is one of my favourite colours in the world and you really can see that between Port Augusta and Wyala. So I was so happy that that came to the fore uh, there. I love that it's embossed with the, the rain droplets as well. How good is that? So, yeah. yeah, that's lovely. I've had so many people remark about that and the fact that they were, they were startled and thought they'd spilt their drink on it. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the person who designed the cover must like be considering that to be Absolutely. a high praise indeed that they did that. You kind of put it in a really eloquent manner and it's funny that it's sort of, um, I guess it's the perspective in which that you look at it as well, but it's, you know, a good time for daydreaming, as you mentioned, but at the same time, there's this sort of uh, undercurrent of extreme isolation that can get pretty virgin to the kind of unsettling pretty quickly. And I think that that was another sort of main element that's really intrigued you. And there's obviously kind mm -hmm. of being really kind of translated onto the page as well, this sort of feeling of extreme isolation. I mean, members of the, the party sort of split up at different points, kind of being forced to by circumstances. And to, to do so or to, to do that from kind of the lens of someone that uh, writing from, obviously you yourself have experienced that, but then to write that anew from a character that hasn't necessarily experienced that, particularly from someone that's a visitor to Australia. How did you go about doing mm. that, Michelle? What was the, what was that again to get that sort of right in terms of the authentic isolation feeling for someone that might have not experienced it before? I oh, so you mean from the perspective of these international backpackers? Yes, yes. But again, I mean, yeah, because like, Scott and Haley, I don't think have really been around there no. before in that sort of way either. She mentions about That's feeling right. guilty that she hasn't explored Australia, which a lot of people, including myself, uh, very much feel. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Uh, yeah, that's a fantastic question. I'm glad you asked that. No one's really um, delved into that before. Um, I'll just tackle Haley and Scott first. So they're heading into the third year of university and quite young. So it's not so unusual that they wouldn't have done this iconic, you know, road trip down the centre of Australia. You know, lots of grown adults um, haven't done that. Uh, but, yeah, as you say, Haley somewhat feels guilty about that. You know, she... Um, is a person um, that, you know, almost eagerly drapes guilt over her shoulders too often. That's that's her personality type. 
and you know she sort of has this inner monologue about you know woe is me about the things that she perceives as her character flaws and one of them is and not having done enough travel uh so that's a really a, a big driver for her to go on the road trip but when it comes to these international backpackers we have Livia from Brazil and Eust from the Netherlands the thing is that I, I was born in Australia but I do feel like an outsider which is a very strange thing to say mm. because my father is Dutch and my mother's Finnish uh, so they came here um when they were young, so four and ten, um, and they were the type of people, and I grew up in these families that didn't really um, embrace the Australian culture very much and didn't assimilate, if you like. Um, my dad still hates the AFL, cannot understand it. <laughs> you know, there was no um, getting into the school community, rolling up your sleeves and helping at barbecues or the canteen. They really kept themselves apart. And I always carried that sense of being outside or new and different with me as well, even though I was born here. Mm. It sounds odd and it's something I've sort of come to learn over recent years, but that's been useful for writing and especially with the rush. So I felt like I'm, I am almost an alien or a traveller dropped here and I can make these external observations. But, of course, with those two family backgrounds, I also have a lot of family overseas. They have travelled here and I've been able to show them around and, and see what myths about Australia they bring with them what um, they are amazed by and what they love. Uh, for example, um, when the Finnish relatives come here, they are stunned and astounded and dismayed by the awful, apparent awful noises our birds make. <laughs> they think our birds are horrible, <laughs> that they're abrasive. I'm, I guess they're thinking of all the galahs and cockatoos and the magpies. Mm. I don't know. Or crows, sorry. I think magpies sound beautiful. But um, so those, that's all helped go into that melting pot, I think, um, and has contributed to those personalities of the, of the backpackers and some of the things that they say and questions they've got on the journey. In terms of the backpackers and the way in which, like, there's the perception of self and kind of what you mentioned, even within, like referencing your own sort of identity there. And there's, yeah. I think that that's a theme that also kind of carries into, albeit slightly different from the perception of self to the perception of others. And I think that there's two sort of standout examples that I fought with uh, Haley and Scott and mm -hmm. Quinn and her family, which probably won't go into too much there. But with Haley and Scott, and I think there was one line, I stupidly wrote down, but I've got like a million trillion notes. I think it was something yeah. about, um, well, Haley's saying was the effect of he's her Scott, the belief in someone being that someone forever. And I was trying to find uh, a more applicable quote, but I could only, the only one I could come up with was I think it's an F. F Scott Fitzgerald one, which he probably stole from Zelda Fitzgerald. Was saying, <laughs> I don't ask you to love me, again, paraphrasing, but something like love me as I am tonight. And it's kind of understanding that the character of oneself will change or the person that we're with won't be that person. Again, presumably, you know, even from outside of this day. And I actually yep. thought that was quite relevant to Haley's perception of Scott and mm. not really identifying with the person that he's becoming. Um, yeah. At least, but, just, but just that 
And is that something that kind of intrigued you a little bit there, Michelle? Because that's something that's kind of going on within the plot, sort of sort of a subplot, mm. but it was something that kind of grabbed my attention when I was reading it. What do you reckon? Or is that something that I've just like picked yeah. up? No, I'm glad. I'm glad. I think that's one of the overlooked aspects. Um, you know, when you write a thriller like this, people come away mostly with memories of the twist at the end. Mm. Um, and then they reflect on red herrings and they'll they'll just get caught up in the adrenaline drive. But there were a lot of um, relationship aspects um, to this book. And I, yeah, I thought the Haley and Scott relationship is obviously uh, very important. Mm. And I wanted to explore, among other things, um, young people and in their first relationship how they might accept things that they wouldn't accept later on when they're more mature, that they might be more forgivable in some scenarios. But also I wanted to touch on, and this is hard, I don't want to get into spoilers, but touch on the challenges of young people in this digital age, Mm. you know, this porn generation. So you might have different influences when it comes to your relationships that we didn't have decades ago when porn wasn't easily available online and, you know, it wasn't like this sort of role modelling sex for us. So the mm. expectations, things change in the bedroom. There's a lot for Haley to um, grapple with and um, it really does is also build Scott as such an unlikable character. <laughs> I've had so many people remark on that, you know, he's... Um, well, the, the names they um, call Scott, you wouldn't want to repeat in a podcast. But they do wonder, I think, why Haley endures him, why she puts up with him and keeps trying. Mm. But that's just a hallmark, again, of a young and early relationship. Um, I'm sure uh, a lot of listeners would have had similar ones where you reflect and think, why didn't I leave earlier? Well, you, you just keep trying. Yeah, definitely. And I think it is that sort of um, you know clinging to a belief someone is – someone can become the person that they were or they can become a better version mm. of themselves. And it's never, neither, neither is, is ever the case, but it's something that can take years, if not a lifetime, mm. if not a lifetime <laughs> and then some to kind of, you know, without getting too grim or sort of maudlin about that. But yeah, you yes. mentioned about perception of the way in which we perceive people in terms also of the way in which we perceive others as well, because with this, with the relationships, that makes sense. That's empirical. That's stuff that we've, you know, we've we've garnered over the course of however long we've been or someone, even if we're still relatively, you know, this is our first serious relationship when we're young. The way in which we sort of perceive others and kind of there's a few examples of various different characters going against their gut feeling. Uh again, I'm I'm, I'm tiptoeing around because I don't wanna I don't wanna I don't wanna reveal red herrings. I don't wanna go, oh well, that, that's a classic example, because I think that's would be like the worst kind of spoiler. But in terms of people, <laughs> characters kind of uh making gut gut instincts or judgments about people only to then kind of question that and this is and i've got to tell you this is a brief aside then michelle i have had like two gut gut feelings in my life that i've ignored and they have been to my extreme yeah. detriment that i've done that yeah so why do you think it is sometimes that we can have this perception of someone that we've just met and they might kind of be an archetypal sort of character that we go oh they, they look like a low life type person mm-hmm. and then kind of at the same time conversely you could be more forgiving about someone that's kind of actually exhibited sort of creepy behaviour. What is it that sort of intrigued your imagination there and kind of wanted to explore within the sort of confines of the rush? Yeah, I think society has uh, brought us up that way, that we're Mm. supposed to give people the benefit of the doubt and as much as possible cling to civility and manners. And for women, that's even more so. And that's Mm. 
what I wanted to explore through characters like Andrea, where I think she actually remarks that that manners uh, um, or politeness is her only armour. So she's in a vulnerable situation, but she is giving someone the benefit of the doubt and being polite and and hoping that that person stays polite and and therefore she can navigate through this um, scary scene um, safely. I think, um, you know, it's well known now that um, Western society tends to bring up women um, to be deferential and to um, ignore their gut feeling. Mm. So, you know, you might have this instinct or a sensation about someone not being quite right and you don't want to spend time with them, um, but there's no way that you can turn your back. You have to maintain a conversation. You have to be polite. You have, uh, women have to smile. So these are the things that um, Andrea knows and it's put under the spotlight because of the isolation of the, the pub where she works uh, she can't, um, you know, um, drop things and hand something over to another staff member. She can't easily get a job a few suburbs away. Um, she is where she is. All different sort of guests come and go. And uh, even though her instincts might um, tell her to do otherwise, she needs to put up with more than she might um, be comfortable with. It's the want of an age of agency as well that's kind of afforded sort of men to, I would say, maybe potentially in terms of, uh, again, several different examples. And again, I'm tread footing around without, but within, you know, you know your novel back to front. So within Andrea's sort of example and what happens if Andrea, mm. you know, again, I, I think mm. that's, but in terms of, in terms of that, so, so Matt, you know, has, has to go away. I don't think that's, that's too much of a spoiler. That's, that's all I'll say on that front. But in terms of then what happens <laughs> after that, Time and time again, you know, she, she somewhat oscillates between wanting Matt there and not wanting him there because she wants her own agency. Yeah. Is that something, again, that kind of intrigued you as well, Michelle, in terms of kind of women essentially being able to or should be able to have their own sort of agency within these sort of circumstances which are remote and potentially scary even for myself and yeah. as a male? What do you reckon? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So that's one of the um, reasons I think the rush is unsettling, especially for female readers. I've um, had a, um, quite a few reviews where people have said they felt absolutely close to the characters because they they know how they're feeling. Mm. So um, that theme was important to me, the um, undercurrent of women being a little bit more aware and wary um, of their safety, um, you know, what's going to happen uh, next uh, and I mean, all readers of all sorts of genders and backgrounds will, will appreciate that as well. Um, as soon as I put um, any of those female characters in a somewhat isolated situation, where even where things seem benign, where they're having a great time, with a lovely campfire and there's this beautiful bush setting, you just know, we all know really that those characters are, are vulnerable no, no matter how polite they're being to each other. Mm, yeah, definitely. <laughs> And then, I mean, yeah, I guess the threat, so the, the threat of the great unknown is always there as well. And there's kind of this understanding that, you know, because, because it's just this sort of endless expanse of just this alien world that's kind of unknowable, you know, for, for mm-hmm. being from an outsider to go out there, then one just assumes that it's kind of filled with threats. But then <laughs> I felt like one of my main takeaways, and I mean, like, Michelle, like you, you've 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 gone all around these places. I, I have not. I have not. I'm feeling. I'm very much on board with Haley's feelings about not having explored <laughs> in my own country enough. Like I very much want to do that. I just thought, like one of my takeaways was that 
yeah, there's threats out there, but I mean, and like there's Wolf Creek sort of discussed and kind of somewhat, uh, you know, mm. telling a lie with certain characters. Um, but then I think that the greatest threats can be not what's out there already, but kind of what bring what you bring with you, whether it's yourself <laughs> and an ability to negotiate or properly prepare for a situation or to underestimate a situation yes. or something else. I don't know. I think I'm, I'm, I'm trying. I'm trying to tread foot around a little bit, but I don't know. What, what do you think? I know that, there's so like... many issues in the rush that we cannot go near because, um, yeah, it, it it'll just um, be a, a spoiler for the readers. But uh, yeah, it all comes down to yeah, the the isolation and that vulnerability. Uh, and in fact, that was my working title of the, the book many years ago was isolation. Because to me that that's what it was about um, the how your world is flipped if you if you live in that isolated circumstance. I did uh, change that, of course, because um, COVID came along and isolation uh-huh. became a very dirty word. <laughs> uh-huh. I thought I thought nobody's going to crack this book open. <laughs> We're talking about the gestation of the rush because you mentioned many years ago and you, it's got it's undergone it's undergone name change. These are all like rites of passage for a novel. But like, tell me about the the process and how you found it because I mean like obviously your communications is your is your bread and butter that's what you've been doing for your your career but in terms of um you know taking a plunge with a big old novel what's uh, tell me about that process a little bit Michelle how did that kind of come to you and did, was, did it go in stages did it fluctuate was it like a living beast mm. that got bigger and smaller that's certainly what my writing does it's an absolute nightmare <laughs> tell, tell us yeah if- yeah it very it very much went in stages I knew I wanted to write a thriller so in um, late 2019 was when I first mapped it out. So I, I did um, sketch out the plan of what I thought this this book would all be about. Um, so, yeah, that was November 2019, and I worked on it on and off. So you know what it's like. I, I had a, a draft two or three, and then I, then I put it away because heeding that great advice about letting um, your novel um, sit so you can return to it as a stranger. Fresh eyes, yep. And... Um, then I, I I didn't give up writing in those spaces, of course. I was writing on other projects and I'd come back to the rush uh, now and again. And I'm so, so glad that I left it for years because that big twist that everybody enjoys didn't come to me until like draft 12 or something. Okay. Wow. When I thought, when I thought, holy heck, I know it, it existed without that twist and it had great feedback. I went to a manuscript assessor who loved it. I entered it in a writing prize and they loved it. Um, and it still didn't have that big twist. So it's funny how it, it's scary to think about putting it out in the world without that, actually. So um, that it, it could only happen after I'd had um, you know, time to have that brainwave. Uh, one day so I'm really thankful for that but between times I also kept up writing and one of the things I wanted to do was get my name out there as well and get a little bit of credibility and so I had what I call the year of the short story because I do like writing short stories as well and I I have since a teenager so um, in that year I submitted stories to literary journals and to competitions and that was fantastic. So I had a few, um, I had one runner-up, shortlistings, publications, etc. And so when I was ready with the rush, 
to start lifting up my head and approaching publishers and agents, I wasn't a total newbie. Um, I felt like I had a, a little foundation, even if it was only short stories, but I had a track record where some other people had said that I could string some words together. Um, so, yeah, I really enjoyed that year of the short story. I'd love to do it again, but I don't feel like I have time now because I just want to be in novels. Wow. Okay. So this is going to dovetail very nicely. For, so first of all, like in terms of very interesting to hear that you're a plotter, not a pantser. I think I think that's well as you know. Implicitly yeah. Exploring. More so. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, question I always like to ask, crux, crux of the show, Michelle, is in terms of your journey to get to this point. Speaking to me on the show, was there ever a point that you kind of reached a crossroads where you're a bit uh, unsure to the point of nearly giving up? And if so, what made you prevail? And uh, yeah, have you have you ever encountered that yourself, or is that something some people get it daily? Other people have never gotten it. I always love it because I never get the same answer twice. <laughs> Do tell. I don't think no. I I never thought of giving up writing, but I certainly had writing on the back burner for a long time. Oh, yeah. So that might be um, a different approach to um, the topic, <laughs> but I always knew I wanted to be a novelist one day. Since I was a, a kid, like a lot of authors, I wanted to write, but. I was pragmatic at the same time, very, very pragmatic and grew up very poor and was determined not to live poor. So I strove for some occupations that paid a wage. And as we know, being a novelist does not pay a living wage. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and so the dream was always there, but I put it aside for decades as I, I worked in these comms and PR career careers and had children paid the mortgage and did those sort of fundamental things and I had my 50s approaching and so I um, reminded myself of that dream of being traditionally published so that's one aspect I, I guess I put it on the back burner and knew I'd come back to it but um when we're talking about you know do I ever feel like throwing it in or even um um, struggling with writing I don't anymore because I just enjoy it so much you know if we all have hard days or you write a few paragraphs which you think are trash oh yeah um <laughs> but I think that's that's it doesn't put me off I'm just I guess again that's part of my pragmatism I'll, I'll realize that not you can't have a stellar golden day every day yep it's um you're going to have lethargic days and you're going to turn out some awful sentences, but that's fine. I'll return to the desk tomorrow and have another go. And, in fact, I love it so much I, I write seven days a week. Um, I try to have a day off. I have a notional no-keyboard day on Sundays, but I don't even really enjoy that. I don't enjoy being away from the keyboard. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm really happy in a good place now where I enjoy it. It's not smooth sailing. I'm not churning out, you know, um, I won't be churning out a novel a year, um, but I'm writing every day and um, really grateful and, and enjoying it. So good to hear. I, I always love to hear. Well, I always love to hear the answers to that question there, right? Because like I said, there's there's never two two answers that are the same and so many different elements resonate with me and others are different from my own experiences. But I'm so glad that you're in a good place in terms of enjoying it because it's so <laughs> important rather than that kind of um, 
expression or whatever that that saying is about, you know, just chaining yourself to the desk and bleeding on the page or all that sort of <laughs> stuff, which which I don't really kind of go in for either. I mean, like, you know, like it can be hard, but, you know, you've got to love it and really enjoy it at the end of the day. So I'm with yeah. you on that. But I'm so glad Thanks you stuck me. with it, Michelle, because it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you on the show tonight. Thank you so much. So, guys, there you have it. That was me and Michelle Prack discussing her debut crime novel, The Rush. So, huge thanks to Michelle Prack for being so good as to talk to me on this uh, chilly evening. This is the time I was recording, and it was a chilly evening. And, yeah, huge thanks to Michelle for speaking to me from the other side of the country, albeit a different part of the country. It's an absolute pleasure to talk to her about The Rush. So, be sure to get your copy from the good folks at Simon & Schuster Australia. Uh, You can get a copy of The Rush from Simon Schuster Australia. And while I'm in the thanking mood, of course, I have to extend a thank you to you, dear listener, a sincere thank you for listening to this episode, not only this episode, but also, as we like to call it, the ever-proliferating back catalogue of other episodes as well, which are now extending as far back as I'm going to say off the top of my head, but I think it's around November 2020 or October 2020 is when the podcast first started. So, wow, I've gone up to nearly three years of doing this and speaking to getting close to well, it's, it's it's more than halfway towards 100 guests, I reckon. So that's, uh, I think that's incredible. And it's been such a privilege and such a rollercoaster ride. And you'll probably notice that I've kind of had to, to ease off a little bit, diminish the amount of uh, guests in which I get the privilege to speak to uh, because I've been focusing on my own long-form work as well. But uh, yes, be sure to keep uh, staying tuned on the socials, on the Instagrams in particular, uh, to the two Instagram profiles for both the show as well as my individual author page so at the right way podcast or one word at the right way podcast as well as at samuel underscore elliot e double l i o double t underscore author at yeah insta both those two handles there i think that's the correct terminology for instagram as well be sure to follow those accounts to keep abreast of the remaining guests that are coming up got i think uh just under half a dozen but my goodness what an esteemed bunch they are for the rest of the year so yeah be sure to follow those accounts so i'll keep you in the loop about that uh while you're at it and you've been listening to that ever proliferating back catalog be sure to give a cheeky follow on spotify or on apple itunes or hell soundcloud if that's where you're listening to this on as well and in the interim thank you so much for listening to this episode share it with all your friends your enemies whomever you speak to and in the interim i bid you a good evening